Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word. Our Father, we are so grateful for the word of God. We are thankful that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that the word of God is a light to our path, that it is a lamp to our feet. We thank you that the word of God is pure, that it endures forever. We thank you that the word of God is the way that we know you and that all that we need for life and for godliness we have through our knowledge of you through your word. Lord, you have not ever promised to bless my jokes or illustrations or stories or insights. You have only promised to bless your word. And so I pray that I will be faithful this morning in speaking your word. That the word of God will captivate our hearts, that it'll guide us to you, that through it we will see you. And when we see you, that we will fall on our faces and we will say, holy is the Lamb of God who was slain. Holy is the one who has taken all of our, our pain and our suffering and our sin and our death and has cast it away and provides us a hope and a future. Lord, we pray that we will see you, and in seeing you, we will worship you, that we will worship you in spirit and in truth, that you will transform our hearts because we will say, woe is me, for I am undone, for I have seen the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of hosts. Lord, I pray that we will be people who are captured by your glory and your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend in Dallas who is looking for a job. And over the past couple of weeks, um, she's had three interviews and all of them have resulted in a no. <laughs> um, and she posted something on Facebook about, well, bad luck comes in threes. So I'm hoping that the interview I had today will turn into a yes. And someone responded almost immediately, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. Um, and, and their exchange got me thinking about superstitions. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from uh, The Office is Michael Scott saying, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. Um, uh, we, we probably um, have all uh, said or done some kind of thing that's based on superstitions, right? Um, if you've ever introduced somebody to a new game and their first time out of the shoot, they win, what do you say? Ah, it's beginner's luck, right? And that is a superstition from early gambling days. Um, if you were with your kids and they saw a penny on the ground, you might say, hey, find a penny, pick it up, right? Why? It's part of the superstition. So you, you don't walk under a ladder. Well, that might seem like it's practical advice, but the idea of not walking under a ladder came from people being afraid that the shadow of the ladder would be like the shadow of the gallows. And so they didn't want that to cross them. Um, some people would say, knock on wood, right? And, and it comes from myths about um, uh, spirits being in trees. And then later it was Christianized to be talk about the cross. Um, uh, every Thanksgiving, we, you know, have a turkey and you pull out the wishbone, right? And there's a tug of war. And, you know, as, as we were growing up, four very competitive boys, like we, we wanted to like get the bigger piece of that. And we didn't look at it as we're doing divination with bird bones. We looked at it as like, it was just a competition, but, but supposedly you, you get the big piece, you get to make a wish, right? Uh, I remember breaking a mirror and somebody said, oh, look at that, seven years, bad luck. Have you, you, 
kind of encountered or or maybe even said some of these things um and then take it a step further like have you ever seen spiritual superstitions um when when i was a kid um it was very common for people to refer to sunday as the sabbath and to refrain from doing work on on sundays and i remember taking a pair of my pants to my grandmother that i needed to wear on monday for some school event that they needed to be hemmed and so I took them over to my grandmother and I said, Grandma, you've got a sewing machine. Can you hem these pants? And she says, oh, Timothy, I can't possibly do that. If I put these stitches in, I'll have to pull every stitch out with my nose when I get to heaven. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, that's what my mother told me. It was a spiritual superstition. My, my first year of Bible college, bad things would happen to people. And they would say, oh, I knew this was going to happen. I didn't do my quiet time this morning. And it was spiritual superstition. I remember a guy coming to speak when I was at Liberty University. And, and he got up to speak and he said, the title of my sermon is Give to Get, the Law of Sowing and Reaping. And he went on to talk about the way that you obligate God to give you things by giving to him. And, and it was spiritual superstition. When, when we are going to look this morning at not just one guy, but a whole group of people who are living in spiritual superstition. Now, remember, we're in, in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, there's nine signs that Jesus did. And, and each of these signs that he did were to meet a felt need or a physical need. They were acts of love and compassion. And, and, and they were incredible, impossible things that Jesus did this incredible, impossible thing, and then took it to another level, right? He he doesn't just turn water into wine, but he turns it into the best wine, and he makes gallons and gallons and gallons of it. Um, he doesn't just heal a boy, but he heals him from a distance. In this instance today, we're going to look at, he doesn't just heal a, a guy who's lame, but he heals a guy who's been lame for 38 years. He doesn't just walk on water, but he walks four miles out into the water. All of these signs, it says in John 20, that Jesus did these, he did many other signs, but these nine, these are recorded that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you might have life. And so we are talking about believing, and we, as we are talking about believing, we're talking about, part of talking about believing is to talk about laying aside spiritual superstitions. In John chapter 5, we, we begin kind of in a different place than, than where we've been up to this point. In the other three, or the other signs that we've talked about, it's kind of been um, Jesus in the early days of his ministry, and, and they seem to be sequential, and they're back-to-back. This is the first time where it kind of breaks, and we're not really sure how far later this is after the previous sign. We're not really sure, like, what feast this is that it's talking about. In, in John chapter 5, uh, it says, after this, which could be translated, sometime later. There's sometime later, there was a feast of the Jews, and we don't know what the feast was, but we know that Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So Bethesda is in North Jerusalem, and it's the site that we know now um, that where St. Anne's Church is. And, and about 150 years ago, archaeologists dug up um, the, the roof that was over the grotto 
that was over these pools. And as they did it, they found all of the arches and the pillars for the five roofs. And so they understand that this is the, the location. And, and what they understand about this is these pools are artesian wells. And so uh, these artesian wells are, are there. And, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, people that are unable to take care of themselves. They're blind, they're lame, and they're paralyzed. Now, if you have uh, a King James Version, um, then you have a verse four. Um, for If you have the NIV or the ESV or the New American Standard, um, then you might notice that verse four is missing. And verse four is missing because it, it, it gives us a sense of like what the people's superstition was, but it's something that showed up in later manuscripts um, and not something that was in the earliest manuscripts. So uh, if you don't know anything about textual criticism, the, the idea is that, that like leading up to 1611, when the King James was printed, they had a limited number of manuscripts that they could pull from. And, and in those manuscripts, um, they, when you look at, at what they were able to do with King James Version, it is an amazing, like very clear, um, very accurate, well-preserved, word-for-word translation of the scripture. But as we have uncovered more and more manuscripts, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these others that, that they have found over time, what they've noticed is that the earliest ones, the ones closest to uh, the original autographs that the writers wrote, um, some of them um, have, have some things that aren't in these later manuscripts. Verse 4 is one of those things. It's similar to, like, there's a passage in Mark 9 where there's two verses that are identical to each other, and so we drop one out because we realize that it's not in the early one. It's not being repeated. Some scribe was writing and he looked up and then he wrote the same thing again, right? I mean, so that's kind of what, what happened. Um, that being said, we, we should not have um, a lack of confidence in the scriptures. When you look at those earliest manuscripts and then you look at what we have in our hands today, the, the, the preservation of the scripture is absolutely remarkable. But at some point, probably in the Middle Ages, uh, somebody introduce this idea of, of kind of explaining what it was that people were waiting for. They were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So he didn't understand artesian wells. He didn't understand how water could move through there. He, he basically was giving an explanation for what people thought and the, and the, the superstition that they had. And so in verse five, it says one man was there who had been an invalid for 30 year, 38 years. When, when it says invalid, the word is uh, asthenia. It's incapacitated or weak or powerless or feeble or helpless. It is the same word that's in 2 Corinthians 12 that says God's power is made perfect in weakness. It's it's a word that is not as precise as John could have been. John could have chosen a word um, that was, he was paralyzed, or he was crippled, or you, you, he, could, he could have chose a number of different words, but instead he chose a word that was kind of ambiguous, and it leaves you wondering, is he weak and powerless physically, or is he weak and powerless spiritually? And I think the answer is, He's both. He's weak and powerless physically, and it points to his weak powerlessness spiritually. What do I mean by that? Well, all of us have been weakened. All of us have been uh, made sick. There is something that we refer to as original sin. 
And original sin is not so much an event as a condition. Um, in, in Romans chapter 12, it says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, um, the death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so we sin, um, or we are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners uh, because we were born that way, and we sin because we're sinners. So that's kind of the idea of original sin. The other idea that you have to kind of understand in this is the idea of what theologians call total depravity. Total depravity does not mean um, that, that in our sinfulness, we are as bad as we possibly could be, right? And it doesn't mean um, that that we are like um, uh, totally corrupt. It just means that everything in us has been touched by corruption. We are still creatures created in the image of God. We are still people who were given the imprint of God's face. Like he put his thumbprint on us and we were created in his image. And so the idea of total depravity is what Jeremiah captures in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and we can't even know our own hearts. Sometimes we make decisions thinking we have good motives, but really we have ulterior motives that are hidden down below. And he says, look, you can't even know your own heart. And and so, so as we think about those things, those are the things that incapacitate us spiritually. Well, this man was also incapacitated physically. And so um, Jesus sees him there. And, and it says when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had been there for a long time. And I love what he asks him. He doesn't say, hey, why do you believe this stupid superstition? Why do you hang out here by this pool hoping that some angel is going to touch the water? Why don't you go to the, to the temple and pray? He doesn't ask any of those things. What he asks is, do you want to be healed? And the sick man says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water's stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. The guy does not understand what Jesus is offering. He thinks that Jesus is saying, oh, do you want to be healed? Maybe I can help you in the water. And he's thinking if Jesus does anything to help him, it's going to be to put him in the water. And so Jesus um, says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And you go, wow, that's incredible. And then there's this comment. Now that day was the Sabbath. You go, oh man, Jesus, didn't you know any better? Like, it's the Sabbath. You, you can't heal him and you can't take him, ask him to take up his bed and walk. He's going to get in trouble. And sure enough, it says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, you know that you have become uh, too focused on uh, the restrictions made by man when you don't look at a guy who's been lame for 38 years and say, wow, how did this happen? You get hung up on the fact that he's carrying his bed. The, the, the Jewish people, like if you look in the scriptures, there's no place in scripture where it says you can't heal on the Sabbath. And there's no place in scripture where it says you can't carry something from here to there on the Sabbath. But as the Jews built out kind of their rules around how are we going to keep the law, they took Torah and then they incorporated in the Talmud, which is like all of their like 
how they they viewed Torah and and how they were to put those things into practice. And they came up with 39 rules. And those 39 rules were, this is how you keep the Sabbath. And these are all the things that are illegal to do. And it's not just you're, you're breaking tradition. It's it's like if I went and smashed somebody's window in, it's against the law and you could go to jail. They're, they the 39th rule was you could not carry something from one place to another on the Sabbath day. And so here they are, and they're upset because he's breaking the law. And they think, what are you doing? And the man answers, the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And, and when you read that, you go, wait, this sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 3. When God says, Adam, what did you do? And he says, the woman you gave me, she she's the one who picked the fruit. And it, it's it, this This is a guy who... He does not have faith in Jesus. He doesn't know really who Jesus is. He doesn't understand. He's not like some of the other people you see in scripture where when they're healed or when Jesus does something miraculous, they fall down on their face and they worship him as Messiah. He doesn't get any of that. And, and he doesn't even know Jesus's name. And so he says, the man who healed me, that, like he, he's still doing the thing that Adam did in his sin. He is still not, he's trying to not take responsibility and put that responsibility on somebody else. And he is not acting in faith. And so it says, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But he didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. Well, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple, and he said, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, when some people read that, they, they read that and they think, oh, this is um, uh, a case where uh, Jesus is, is saying that probably what this guy did was, uh, was sin, and somehow that sin led to his lameness. And that's possible. But I think more than likely what Jesus is saying is, look, you're well, stop sinning so that um, nothing worse may happen to you. What is worse that can happen to you than being lame, being incapable, being somebody that's unusable within society, somebody that's an outcast among people? It, the, the only thing that is worse is being an outcast with God and being separated from him. And so he says, look, it's time to leave your life of sin. And and it's time to to have your relationship with God and, and to, to not be separated from him. And so um, the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus that healed him. And then there's two statements that it says, this is why. It says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So first it says they were this is why they were persecuting him. Now, this is why they wanted to kill him. Not, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. A lot of times people today, they don't understand the claims of Jesus. And they don't understand that Jesus, like what C.S. Lewis said, was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. Because he claimed that he was equal with God. And that, that God was his father, and that he was sent by God, and he was was given all authority by God. And people who think of, of Jesus as just a good teacher, they're missing out because they, they're thinking he's a good teacher. But reality is, if he is not actually the Son of God, if he is not actually the third person of the Trinity, if all authority has not been given to him in heaven and earth, then he is either a nut job or he's a liar. And he shouldn't be somebody that we read and, and are excited about. Like we, what we know is that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, that all authority was given to him.
And so that's why they were seeking to kill him because they thought he, he wasn't just breaking the Sabbath, but he was claiming equality with God. And Jesus said to them, and, and this is kind of an interesting thing, because this passage, he kind of talks about uh, his relationship to God in terms that they would understand as like a son who was apprenticed to his father. Like Jesus was a carpenter. And so he was at one point apprenticed to his father to learn carpentry. And, and somebody else might be apprenticed as a silversmith. And somebody else might be apprenticed for any number of things, right? And, and he says this, truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. So, so it begins to paint a word picture. They see a father and son in a shop working together, and the son is not going to try to do something where he could mess up something for the customer. He only does what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. This is kind of a common idea, and we read it in other passages where Jesus talks about the fact that God has given him authority. And and he tells parables about uh, a son who was given the authority of the father, and he goes and he is beat up and killed. And what is it saying? It's saying that because they disrespected and they killed the son, that they were rejecting the father. And so he makes that that comment here, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Well, what does that mean? When, when we talk about eternal life, I've said this before, and I'll, I'm sure I'll say it again. When, when the Bible promises us eternal life, it is not promising that we will live forever because we already live forever. All people who are created in the image of God are created as eternal beings. We bear the thumbprint of God and we are eternal. We're all going to live to forever somewhere. And so, so when he says that you will have eternal life, he's not talking about you'll have length of years. What he's talking about is, is uh, something entirely different. I remember um, when I was growing up, my great aunt Irene would come to, to visit and my great aunt Irene always showed up in the same exact pink dress and she always had the same powdery perfume and she would come in with the largest purse I'd ever seen and she would reach into the purse and she would pull out a pack of pictures because back then we didn't have phones to look at pictures or we didn't have Facebook or whatever and she would begin to show pictures of her friends oh you remember so and so from such and such I, I, of course, had never met any of these people. I had never been to any of these places. But she she pulls out the pictures, and and they're grainy. I mean, this is like back during the time when we had 110 film, right? And so these, there's these grainy pictures. And, and you're like three pictures in before you realize, wait a minute, all these people are in a box. She has taken pictures at their funeral, and she has gotten a shot of them in the box. And, and, and when I had a conversation with my parents after that, and I was saying like, okay, so what happens after we die? It wasn't because I needed to see more pictures of people in a box, right? It was that, that I understood intuitively that there's more to this life than this life. And, and, and just seeing somebody in a box doesn't 
resolve in my heart the notion that there's something that happens after we die. And, and so uh, when, when we are, are saying that this is eternal life, what we are saying is it's not the promise of long years. It's, it's the, the promise that God will give us the eternal life of the eternal one. And it is more than just that God gives us um, a number of years in heaven, right? It is that, that God gives us himself that he gives us the eternal one to live within us. Jesus came as God with us, and God sends the Spirit to be God in us. And we have the eternal one, the eternal Holy Spirit living within us. It's why in Acts chapter 19, when the the disciples were saying to to some of John's disciples, um, uh, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? They didn't ask, when did you come to faith? When did you believe in Jesus? When did you say a prayer? They asked, when did you receive the Spirit? Because that is what it means to be a Christian, that we have been given the gospel, the good news, and the good news is God himself. We get God. That, that is the, the heart of the gospel. It's not just forgiveness of sins. We, we've made it so much about, the, about penal substitution, which it is about, that we forget that the primary thing is that we get God, that God who is holy, that is, he only ever does what's good, right, and perfect. God who is holy, who does not allow sin to remain unaddressed in his presence. God who is holy allows us not just to be in his presence, but he puts his presence within us. That is the good news. And so we become what he is. We become holy. We become, we begin to do what's good and right and perfect, right? And so so um, when we talk about eternal life, we're, we're not talking of just about living forever. We're talking about having the Holy Spirit. So he says, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. We we don't face the, the, the judgment and the substitution and the taking care of our sins is a secondary thing. The primary thing is that God himself is the gospel and we get him. And so uh, he goes on and, and he begins to talk about like what it means about not to pass into judgment. And he, he lays out for these people why it is they deserve judgment. He says, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live for as the Father has life in himself. So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so he is, he is laying out a future state, and he is saying, look, and he'll do this in other places. He'll talk about the sheep and the goats, and he'll say, when the Son of Man comes to sit on his glorious throne, he will gather the nations, and, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He is talking about judgment that's coming, and, and the righteous will go to reward, and those who have not been given the Spirit, those who have not come to believe, those who have rejected him, they will be uh, receive a resurrection of judgment. And so he says, look, this is why you deserve it. I can do any, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, um, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony isn't true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears is true. 
And so the, he's about to give four ways, four testimonies, four um, uh, witnesses of, of the truth of what he says. You sent John. John is the first one. John has borne witness of the truth. And if you remember back in John chapter one, um, John the baptizer is out and he proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his testimony about Jesus was, this is the final sacrifice. This is the one who, because his blood will be shed, all people will be he will be the only sacrifice we ever need again. We won't need to keep sacrificing lambs. He will take that punishment for us and he will be that sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and so he says, John bore witness to the truth. And that testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. And then he talks about his works, and he knows that they have seen his works. They just saw him heal a man who had been lame for 38 years. They know that, that people are talking about the fact that he turned water into wine. He's, he's healed a guy from a distance, right? He's, he's done many other signs that we don't know of in John, uh, but, but we know about in the synoptics. And he talks about his works, and he says, the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father sent me. And the Father sent me as himself bore witness about me. So he says, look, John is my witness. My works are my witness. And the Father who sent, has sent me is also my witness. And his voice you have never heard. And his form you have never seen. When, when he says his voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen, those are statements of judgment when taken together. It, they are a reference back to Isaiah chapter six when it says, you are always hearing, but never understanding. You are always seeing, but you are never perceiving. And so it is a statement of judgment. And then he says something really incredible. And you do not have his word abiding in you. And, and if, if you were just blowing past this and you were just reading through and you didn't stop on that, um, it's because you don't really understand who these people are. These are religious people. These are the Pharisees. These are the teachers of the law. These are the people who got upset about a guy who they knew the 39th rule that you couldn't carry something on the Sabbath. And so these people who loved the word, the loved the law, he says, look, his word is not in you, for you do not believe in the one who he has sent. When 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 we miss out on the fact that that we like who these people are, it's because we're blind to who we are. I was reading. There's a, a blog post uh, from May 25th. Uh, Irma Kim Hackett, who lives up uh, in Northern California, um, made this statement. Now she's a liberal, and there's a lot of things she says that I disagree with, but this I 100% agree with. She says, American Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney princess theology. Each individual reads the scriptures and they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are always Esther. They are never Xerxes or Haman. They are always Peter, but they are never Judas. They are always the woman anointing Jesus. They're never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping Egypt. They are never Egypt. It means that they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture. And this passage should give Christians pause because it should remind us that we can immerse ourselves in the word of God and immerse ourselves in the scripture and in doctrine and still miss Christ. I, 
I know I did it right. I, I, uh, my, you know, my story of grace is that long before I ever learned to love Jesus, I learned to love His Word. But I loved His Word like a lawyer loves the law. I saw the beauty in it. I saw that like I could, I could figure out the system of it, and and that part of it uh, somehow I thought that if. If I just had the word, if I knew the word, if I if it was in my heart and in my mind, if I could speak it at the moment's notice, if I could quote it, if I could understand theology, that that, that is what would, would redeem me. And I was like these people. And when we are Christians, it is very easy for us to think, I love the word. I love the disciplines. I love the church. And, and to confuse that with, I love Christ. And so he says this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll have eternal life. You think in them you'll have that eternal thing that you're looking for because you are an eternal being, but it's them that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And so then he, he ends with two questions. He says, I, I do not receive the glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Man, what a statement that is, right? You do not have the word of God in you, and you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, and he gives the fourth one. So he said, John is my witness, and the Father is my witness, and my works are my witness. The scripture that Moses wrote is my witness. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And he ends with these two questions. How can you believe when you receive glory from each other and you won't seek God's glory? And how do you believe Moses' writings when, when you don't believe my words? And in ending with these two questions, he is ending by passing judgment on superstitious spirituality. You, you have to understand, these people understood the, the Bible. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. And they knew that there were two prophets who their book ended with a question. And both of those books were, were that ended with a question were pronouncements of judgment. And both of them were on Israel's worst enemy. It was, it, it was on Nineveh. And so you go to the book of Nahum, and it ends in a question. And you go to the book of Jonah, and it ends in a question. In Jonah, um, you know, Jonah takes his, his message of judgment after being swallowed by a whale. He, he is vomited back up on the beach, and he goes into, into Nineveh, and he goes, fine, I'll do what you ask, but I'm not going to be happy about it. And he just goes through the city yelling, God is going to destroy you. And, and then something amazing happens without him really having any compassion, any love for them, giving them any real direction. These people respond in, in absolute contrition and they tear their clothes and they put on sackcloth and ashes and they fall on their faces and they beg God to relent. And God does. And Jonah gets so angry about it. He gets, And he's yelling at God in a prayer, God, I knew you were merciful. God, I knew that you were slow to, to judgment. I, I knew that you would mess this up. Why don't you just kill me? Because I would rather die than live in a world where the Ninevites aren't judged. And God asks him this question. He says, um, why should I not have mercy on Nineveh with its 120,000 people? And a bunch of cows. 
it's like he understands that, that Jonah has no love for those 120,000 people. And, and, and he kind of throws in the cows like, well, maybe you'll care about that. And it is a statement of judgment on Jonah the prophet. When the, the book of Nahum, um, the, you get to the last chapter and, and it's saying, woe to Nineveh. And it's talking about judgment that's going to fall on Nineveh. And he says, um, who will grieve for Nineveh? Your shepherds are asleep, Assyria. Your people are scattered. There's no easing your hurt. Your wounds are grievous. All who hear the news about you are going to clap their hands in joy. For who has not experienced your unceasing evil? The, these questions that the, the prophets left out there resounded in people's minds, then they knew that when God ended with a question, what he was saying was, there's no hope for you, and I'm just going to leave you with this question. And so when Jesus ends, he ends with this question. And, and the question is, is, if you didn't believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? And so there's this sense of impending judgment. And it points back at the 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 prophets, Jonah and Nahum, but it also points back at the words that Jesus has already spoken. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. With, with this enduring question, he, he points them back to this statement that he makes. If you will just hear my word, if you will just believe, you can have eternal life. I don't want to judge. It's it's the same as what he said in John 3. The Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And he says he doesn't come into You can escape the judgment. There are witnesses against you, but it doesn't have to be your final judgment. And so he invites them to lay aside their superstitious religiosity, to, to lay aside that spiritual superstition and to pick up the truth. What is it that happened when religious, superstitious people tried to kill Jesus for, for healing on the Sabbath and, and for claiming equality with God? He demonstrated to these religious people that God, because in their superstitious spirituality, they had rejected him. He, he demonstrated that God could still call them to eternal life and to freedom from judgment. When, when we look at this, we have to see what always happens, right? We, we are a, a people who naturally fall into spiritual superstition. And what always happens when we reject spirit, Jesus for spiritual superstition is that Jesus shows us our need for God. He shows us the witnesses that he has, his word, his spirit, his people, and he calls us away from judgment and he calls us to life. Have you fallen into spiritual superstition? Has your reading of the word of God um, or your time in prayer or your disciplines become something that you look at like a, like a magic rabbit's foot that you rub? Um, are you more inclined to notice the law breaking of people than to see what it is that God's doing in their hearts? Are you trusting in your church attendance or in your spiritual disciplines more than you're pursuing Christ? Is the fact that Christ's redeeming work has given you God himself your best news, or have you somehow warped the gospel to be something less? When we say that we are a gospel people on gospel mission, 
in gospel community, what we are saying is that we are people who find Jesus most glorious, that we are people that we long um, to, to share with people what has captivated our hearts because it just overflows out of us. We are saying that we long to be with other Christians because we see the beauty of God in them. And, and we, in being with God in them, it reshapes us. Let's lay aside our, super, our, our superstition, our spiritual superstition, and glory in Christ alone. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus did many incredible signs, but he did these. He did this one, that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. Jesus is calling you to life, and he is calling Christians away from your spiritual superstition and to real life. And those who have not crossed the line of faith, he is calling you away from all your worldly superstitions and into life. He is calling you to eternal life and he wants you to be free from judgment and to pass from death to life in the way that you end this life and in the way that you live it. Our Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are thankful for the the signs that you have given us Lord, these are not just for unbelieving people. These are for believing people. My faith grows as I read these things. I, I understand you better. I see your power. I see your love. I see your grace. I see your mercy. I see your compassion. I see you offering hope to people who are rejecting you with the way that they live in religion. Lord, I pray that we will lay aside empty religion, that we will re- lay aside spiritual superstition, that we will embrace Christ. Lord, make us a people after your heart. Make us a people called by your name. Make us a people who live out the life that you have given us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.